0: Uh, we are going to finish our, our, our study on the tiny house tonight. I know that makes you sad in some ways. Um, other ways, maybe you're excited to see what's next. Who knows? Uh, but just have a, a, a thought, a question that comes up all the time. This is just one of those random questions that people like to, you know, bring up for small talk or whatever. And it's, it's, if you could talk to anybody in history, throughout all of history, you know, who would it be? It could be just a couple of days ago. It could be all the way back to the beginning of time, and inevitably, somebody somewhere in the lo- along the line will say Jesus. Right? That's a good answer. It's a very good answer. Some, you know, some will say God. Some will say, you know, Moses. Some will say just any random person. But if we chose God, if we chose to talk to God, the Old Testament God. And, and we talked to him about, you know, why were the rules so strict and, you know, why this and why that? Man, this world approaches God as though he used to exist, don't they? Right? They approach God as, the, as though he was a, just a historical figure or, or a made-up historical figure. But we know, and it shows us in, in Revelation 1.8, it should be on the screen, God is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end right? We're still in the middle somewhere. He's the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. And this whole study of the tabernacle has been all about pursuing the very presence of God, right? We're not just looking to talk about or talk to some historical figure. We're looking, we're looking to get into the presence of God. And what this whole study we've been calling Tiny House about the tabernacle, God's Really little house that the Israelites picked up and moved along and picked up and moved along and, and just kept setting up. The presence of God dwelt in the midst of this nation, inside of a box, inside of a tent, right? Inside of a, a, a curtained in area. And we've been looking at all the details of, of this. You know, why, why does God take from like Exodus 26 all the way to 40 to give the details of every little facet? of this tabernacle? Well, it's because every little facet of this pictures something else. Every little detail gives us information and spiritual truth. And we've been looking at all those different pictures. And I, I think it's been fun. It's been really cool to look at how those Old Testament things that just look like boring information to us actually apply real time today you know, in our lives. And so we're gonna, we're gonna finish that tonight. I do have a little bit of review on your sheet. Again, just to fill out some more blanks, um, just to kind of cover the ground that we've covered uh, real quickly. On the left, <clears throat> uh, the tabernacle we've seen itself is, is a picture of Christ, right? And, and each of the, the pieces of furniture picture Christ in certain ways as well. But the tabernacle, you know, the outer wall we saw was a picture of Christ's righteousness. The gate shows us that there's one way. If you're going to get to the presence of God, there's only one way to get in, That's Jesus Christ, right? The tent itself, we looked at all the different things that it was made out of and covered in. We saw that that was was a picture of Jesus, right? God in the flesh. It was covered in ram skins. On the top of that was badger skins, the skin of an unclean animal. From God's perspective, looking down, he saw his son take on what was unclean, right? He took on our sins, became sin for us. And so we saw God in flesh pictured in the tabernacle. Tonight, we're gonna to look at the veil, and I'm gonna leave those blank. We'll fill those in. I don't know, if, are they still blank? Yeah, look, good job. I asked for them to stay blank, and they are. So we're gonna leave those blank. You'll see, the, those blanks are the same as the blanks as we get through the points. So when you get them there, you can fill them in in the top. Then we have the furniture, and the brazen altar, altar was a picture of propitiation, right? That, that was God, or Christ, becoming sin for us. There was one way in, and the, as soon as you step in there, you can't get any further until you deal with your sin. Right? You can't get to the presence of God as a sinner. You can't get there on your own. You can't work your way f- through. You have to have a sacrifice, and, and the, the, the perfect sacrifice was Christ. Then the brazen laver was all about purification. We walk around in this world, and we get, we get messy. right? We get dirty, and, and that laver was full of water, And it was the way that the the priests would purify themselves. They would clean themselves. And it was all part of the process of the sacrifices that they had to make. Then we stepped inside the first curtain, and we saw that the only light source was the candlestick. The only source of power right, in our lives is, is the Spirit of God. We need the Spirit of God. And what the Spirit of God sheds light on, and what the candlestick shed light on, was the table of showbread. And that's a picture of the word of God. That's a picture of provision. God has provided everything that we need to be sustained. He has provided his word to sustain us. He's provided his word. And and what we've seen is, man, it's awesome to be able to, to come to that first sacrifice. It's awesome to be able to come within the outer curtain. It's awesome to be able to wash that sin and mess of this world off of our hands and off of our feet. But man, God wants so much more, doesn't he? He wants us to step into that next curtain. He wants us to have that relationship, that close relationship. He didn't save us just to keep washing us clean. He will wash you clean as many times as you need it, but he saved you for more. And then we saw the altar of incense, and that's prayer. And tonight we're going to look at the ark and the mercy seat. So before we get into those details, I want, I want to just pray. Let's ask the Lord to, to teach us uh, you know, some awesome things just to show us these pictures and and be able to see, you know, the the details of how they apply, you know, to us personally. Lord, I'm thankful that uh, you care about the details. You care about the details from so long ago because they, they apply to us now. I'm thankful that you care about the details, the infinite details, the finite details of of, of my life, the smallest things that that probably nobody else cares about, you care about. And I'm so thankful for that. And I'm thankful that you have a message for us tonight. And I pray that I would be able to get out of the way. I pray that you would be able to speak to all of us, that you would move in our hearts with your truth and change us to be more like you. Uh, We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the first point, the veil, and, and your first blanks is the veil is protection from God. And access to God. Sounds contradictory, but we'll get to the point here. It's protection from God because that was necessary in the Old Testament. Right? And we get access to God when God ripped that thing in half. Leviticus 16:2 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place, within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud, upon the mercy seat. Right. So this veil, this first, the 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 veil inside there, was for the purpose of protecting the priests and the high priests from the the presence of God. You step into the presence of God, and you're not properly cleaned. If you have sin on you, if you don't, if you haven't gone through God's specific order of details, you hit the ground dead. Right. God's not messing around. And he's not saying, hey, you know, this is an idle threat. Look, you can't stand in the presence of God with sin in your life. I'm trying to protect you. I'm trying to keep your, you guys safe. Tell Aaron, don't go in there, man, except when I say to go in there and how I say to go in there. All right. so the high priest, once a year, would go into the holiest of all. He wore a robe with bells at the bottom. And you could hear him going back and forth from the, from the sacrifice and the labor and the you know, the altar of incense and, and the table of showbread and doing all of the ceremonial details and, and, and filling everything out and you could hear those bells jingling and then when he would go into the holiest place, when he would go into the Holy of Holies, they would tie a rope around his ankle. If those bells stopped, it's because he was dead. He didn't do something right. Right? God takes this very serious and and you're not sending somebody else in after him. You're going to going to tow that guy out. I'm not going in there. Are you kidding me? That dude just died in there. Forget that. Right? They would tie a rope on his ankle and, and pull him out. That's how serious God is about this. That's, that's how dangerous this was. That's how you know, important it was for them to follow the law exactly. Exodus 34, verses 29 through 35 says, and It came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hands, uh, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not, that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. It was shining, his face was shining from talking to God. When Aaron and all the children of, Mo- of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid, of, afraid to come nigh him, or near him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the con- congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them commandment, all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face, right? He was protecting them. There was a barrier because they couldn't handle that he was in the presence of God. That's how powerful the presence of God was. Moses was allowed to go in God's presence and that was freaking them out. They couldn't even handle it, right? And so Moses, it says, he puts a veil on his face, so that they would actually be able to hear what he would say. Jesus, when he took the, some of his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, on the Mount of Olives, in Matthew 17, it says that he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. Jesus put on a veil of sorts, didn't he? He put skin on, right, to protect us from who he was on the inside. Right? He had a veil a temporary veil. And Matthew chapter 27 talks about when, when he was done with that veil. Verses 50 to 54, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain, from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after, this, after his resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Right? So when Jesus' body was broken and finally destroyed, right? when, when, he, when he died physically, his physical body the physical veil in the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom. History says that veil was anywhere between four to eight inches thick, right? not something that any man could tear by hand. If men tore it by hand, they would have to do it from the bottom up. They'd have to tear it in shreds. It wouldn't be evenly torn. Right? The picture is that God, when Christ gave up his life for us, God grabbed the veil and pulled it in two from above, from the top to the bottom. God took care of it. Hebrews tells us of the activities of the high priest in in relation to all of of these events. Chapter 9, verses 3 through 15, it says, And after the second veil, the inside veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it, the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot, cannot now speak particularly. Verse 6, he says, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But unto the second went the high priest, alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. So there was a certain process he had to do these things. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, right? There was only one guy that could go in at this time. While as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which, we, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, right? So he's doing this sacrifice once a year and it only makes his flesh clean, for now, and he's got to do it again next year. He's got to do it again next year, right? It's not making his conscience clean. It's not cleaning his soul. But Christ, verse 11, being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say not this building, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place. Having, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, see it only worked for the flesh, the Old Testament sacrifice, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, when, when Christ entered in, when Christ became that sacrifice, when his flesh was torn, when the veil was ripped in two, that's the sacrifice that lasted. That's, that's the veil that was torn that gave us access to God the Father once for all. Not, not once every year to cleanse your flesh so that you can sin again and then have to have it happen again next year. He cleaned it once and for all. Verse 15, and for this cause he is the mediator of the new testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance we get to go in to the holy of holies because of what Christ did hebrews 6:19 which hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast which entereth into that within the veil hebrews chapter 10 Verses 19 and 20. It says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Right? We get to go in because his flesh was torn. The veil was torn. The veil was removed out of the way. He consecrated us. Or he was consecrated for us. And then Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into his grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we don't have to fear the glory of God. We don't have to fear the presence of God. We don't have to have somebody else go in on our account for us and beg for mercy on our behalf. He says we get to go in with boldness. We get to approach the glory of God with boldness because the veil was torn, because of what Christ did for us. That's an awesome, awesome picture, awesome privilege. So the second thing we see, as soon as we walk in, past the veil is the ark. And we've seen all the details of what the gold means and what the types of wood mean and and all of the, the, the surrounding <clears throat> tapestries and, and everything in previous weeks. The contents of the ark is what we're going to look at. Because it wasn't just a box, it was a box that, that had specific items inside. It was a box that the presence of God dwelt in and on. Hebrews 9, four, we just read this a, a few minutes ago, it says, "...which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold." wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant, right? The, the 10 commandments were in there. So the tables of stone, the tables of covenant is the first thing. We'll just look at these in reverse order. This is all a picture of preservation, right? He's, he's keeping these things in there with his presence. He's, he's preserving, first of all, the, the law, right? The law is his word. It's, it's the word of God. He's, He's perfectly able to preserve his word as he said it, right? He's not interested in preserving his ideas. He's not interested in preserving his concepts. He has preserved his word for us. We have the exact words of God, we have exactly what he wants us to have. And we see in Exodus chapter 20, that's where, you know, Moses first got the, the tables of stone written, written by the finger of God, right? He knows what he wrote, he can write it again. Moses destroyed the you know slammed them down, broke them, got in trouble, had to go back up to the mountain and God rode again, right? He's fully capable of preserving that. And that was one of the items inside of letter B. The second item that was in there was Aaron's rod that budded. And this is just as a picture of preservation of life. <coughs> Excuse me. And and we see that uh, I've got numbers 16 and 17 here. There's a, a long story. I don't want to read the, both chapters of that, but it's about um, a rebellion that happens with these people of of Korah, right? They come in and they say, basically, you know, who do you think you are, Moses? You're always bossing us around. You act like you're the only one God ever talks to. We can talk to God ourselves too, right? This is my summary of of that. But, you know, it comes down, you know, Moses and Aaron are like, oh, oh, crud. These guys are gonna get vaporized. We better watch out. Right? And, and God lets it go on for a little bit. <clears throat> and eventually, you know, I, I can't remember if it was Moses or Aaron, but they, they say, all right, let's, let's all gather up some sticks. I've got, you know, Aaron's got his, his rod. Let's throw them down, kind of casting lots. We'll, we'll just roll some dice or whatever with sticks <laughs> and, and let God determine who's in charge. Right? And what ended up happening is everybody throws their stick in and they're all just sticks except. Aaron's rod has, you know, they, they put them there, they leave them overnight, they come back the next day. Aaron's rod has leaves and almonds. Who so stuck that in there, right? Well, God did, right? God, God is capable of bringing life from a dead branch. He's, he's capable of doing that. And so this is one of the items that was inside of the, the Ark of the Covenant, Right? It was one of the items that was inside the box. And, and it's interesting, if you look at John 15, 5, the whole chapter of John 15 is pretty awesome. But this specific verse says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Right? Every one of those guys threw their stick in the pile and it was just firewood. And that's what you and I are. That's what we are, without Christ without being connected to the vine without being connected to him there's no life we're just firewood Amen. and the preservation of life think about that he kept, he put he didn't put this rod in there and it had a leaf on it when he put it in and then you know take it out and it's all decomposed right the the thing still had leaves on it it was still alive inside of a box that was covered in gold no light Oh, wait, there was light, right? There was life. This is preservation of life. This is, this is the source of life. It's God. And the third thing that was in there was the pot of manna, and this is, this is a preservation of liberty. And I don't mean liberty as in you can do whatever you want to do, right? That's, that's liberty, but I mean liberty that you're, you're set free. There's freedom, and there's freedom because there's sufficiency in the word of God. It is sufficient to break you free. It is what God promised it is. Right? They didn't have to go back to bondage because in the wilderness they had food. They didn't have to turn back to Egypt and go get the food that they longed for back then. They had provision. God was taking care of them. He gave them what they needed. They, they were able to move forward with God. Philippians 4.19, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Matthew 5.6, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's an awesome promise. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ Christ which strengtheneth me. How many things? All of them. First Corinthians 10.13, there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. But will with the temptation make also a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Why are we able? Because he is able, because his word is sufficient. Liberty isn't about you being able to do what you want. Liberty means you're free. Liberty means you're able Liberty means you don't have to be in bondage to the things that used to keep you in bondage. You've been set free. 2 Corinthians 9.8 God is able to make all grace abound to you that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound in every good work. How much sufficiency does the word of God have? It says it has all sufficiency. It is able For whatever scenario you're dealing with, God's answer is in his word. And it is sufficient to get you through. Acts chapter 20, verse 32 says, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able, to build you up, to give you an inheritance among them which are sanctified. He said, The word of his grace, God's word is able, it's sufficient. It has the supply of what we need. Right? It's, it's easy for us, you know, it's not easy for all Christianity in general, they don't agree with us on all of these points, but it's easy for us to say, God's word is true. Right? We, we would all agree with that. God's word is perfect. We would all say, amen. Is, here's the question, is God's word enough? That's, that's the question you need to answer. That's the question God says he already answered. i preserved it. The answer is preserved. It is enough. It is sufficient. Liberty has been preserved for you, and and it's in God's word. So the third thing that we see, you know, the the ark was a box, and on top of it was a lid that was called the mercy seat. It was two big angels face to face. They shadowed over the box. And and this part's going to be just a little bit different We'll just read through a bunch of different instances of when people come into contact with the presence of God. Pay attention to what people do when they come into the contact, come into contact with the presence of God. The, the mercy seat is all about the presence. <clears throat> Before we look at the people, Psalm chapter 68, verse 2. It says, as smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. If you jump down to verse 8, it says, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Psalm 114, verse 7, tremble thou earth at the presence of the Lord. Psalm 97, 5, the hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. Creation moves when God is present. Creation <laughs> trembles when God is present. The earth and, and everything we see around us, it does what it's supposed to do. So what do people do when they come in contact with God? Genesis 3.8 it's the first time we see the presence of God mentioned in Scripture. It says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees in the garden. You see, Adam and Eve had just sinned. And the presence of God was coming into the garden. What are you going to do when you've got sin on you and the presence of God is coming? You're going to hide. right? They, they ran from God. They hid. Genesis 17 verses 1 through 3. And Abraham was 90 years old and nine. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between thee to, between me and thee. And I will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face. Good call. Good call, Abe. Genesis 32. We talked about this when we did the study of Joseph. Genesis 32, verses 24 through 31. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint. As he wrestled with him, he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, "'Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed.' And Jacob asked him and said, "'Tell me, I pray thee thy name.' And he said, "'Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name?' And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved.' And as he passed over Peniel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. So this is a crazy story. Jacob wrestles with some dude at nighttime, all night long. Can't win. Neither one of them win. This guy touches him in the thigh, and he's out of joint. His leg's out of joint or where, at his hip. And he says, I've, I've had a face-to-face encounter with God. Somehow God was veiled or Jacob would have been a dead man, right? Somehow this was, you know, Christ there. And Jacob's encounter with God leaves him with a limp for the rest of his life. Jacob's encounter with God leaves him with a different name, right? He's no longer the supplanter, He's no longer the, the manipulator, the thief. He's a prince of God with a different kind of walk. Right? That's what Jacob's encounter ended up with. He changed. Acts chapter 7, verse 30 through 33. This is um, <clears throat> Stephen you know, reporting and he's, he's preaching a message and he's just kind of you know, talking about the history of Israel and as he mentions Moses, this, this is basically the, the details of, of what Moses did. He said, And when 40 years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness in Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. And as he drew, drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses trembled. And durst not behold. <laughs> that's a that's a fancy way of saying, I'm not looking over there, man. Because if I do that, I'm probably gonna wet my pants. Right? <laughs> right? That if, if I look over there, and that's really God, you know, if you if you read the Old Testament accounts in Exodus chapter three, you know, Moses is is there and he says something weird like, I will now look at this bush. <laughs> right? Like he's, it's almost like he's trying to muster up the courage. If that's really God, this, this is going to go down, man. <laughs> this is going to go down. Number 16, verses 19 through 22. This is that story I mentioned before about Korah. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them under the door of the tabernacle. So they're, they're rising in rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. So God shows up In the midst of this rebellion, and the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? They're begging on behalf of these people that God doesn't just wipe them out. Isaiah chapter 6. Verses one through five. In the year of King Uzziah, that King Uzziah died, I saw, and the Lord saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. A twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts; the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah's reaction, then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of unclean people, a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response is humility. He's got nothing but unclean lips. I've got nothing... To say, God. Joshua 5.14. Joshua's about to go in and conquer Jericho. He's about to go in and take down the first enemy that they've come to as they've crossed the Jordan River. There's a man standing there, and, and Joshua asks him, Are you for us, or are you against us? Just say you're against us, and I'll wipe you out, basically, is what he's saying, right? And the man answered, and he said, Nay. But as the captain of the host of the Lord am I I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah 1.10 The men were exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord. You see, when somebody doesn't want to change or doesn't want to do what God wants them to do, you know what they do? They run from God. They run headfirst into sin. They run the opposite direction and make terrible decision after terrible decision. And it affects everybody around them. And they don't even see it. Ezekiel 1.28 Ezekiel 3.23, 43.4, forty four 44, four, the, all of these verses are about when Ezekiel is in the presence of God. And they all have the same response, or Ezekiel has the same response in all of them. It says, as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And he heard a voice of one that spake. And he goes on to say what God told him. Each time Ezekiel comes and sees the presence of God, Ezekiel hits his face on the ground. So I'm not sure if if Mercy Me didn't read their Bible, but I can only imagine (laughs) if when I was hitting my face, if I would wet myself on the way down or or if I would just, just be at a total loss. Right? Yeah, I, there's nothing to imagine. You're going to be on your face. Everybody that comes into the presence of God has nothing. They can't even stand. There's no power, there's no strength, there's no words. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 6. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a mountain or a high mountain apart. And was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias. And then Peter starts talking, and while he yet spake, verse 5, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face, and were sore afraid. Acts chapter 9. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired him letters to Damascus. And as he journeyed, in verse 3, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And he, trembling in verse 6, and astonished said lord what wilt thou have me to do that's the right response job if you know the story of job everything he had in life he lost he lost his family he lost his belongings he lost his his farm he lost his wife in the midst of all of it she walked away and told him to curse god and and then he had three worthless friends Blaming him for all of it. And, and finally he'd had enough and he complains a little bit. And God in Job chapter 38 verse 3 says, Gird up thy loins like a man. For I will demand of thee and answer thou me. And God goes from Job 38 verse 3 all the way through 40. Job chapter 40 verse 2. Two whole chapters of just unloading on Job, question after question after question, where were you when I created the universe? Where were you when I kept the tides from going any further than they go? Where were you when I hung the stars? Where were you when I did all of this? And, and Job answers in Job chapter 40, 40 verse three through five, then answered Job, or then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. I I opened my mouth before, and that was stupid. I'm not going to do it. Okay, I'm talking right now, and that's stupid. I'm stopping. I'm not talking anymore. That's basically what Job was saying, right? I'm done. I'm sorry. And God says, Then answered the Lord unto Job, Out of the whirlwind, And said, Gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. That's not good enough, Job. I said you're going to answer me. Job says, I don't know what to say. So God goes on two more chapters with questions. Where were you? Can, can you handle bringing people to their knees in humility? Can you do that? No, I can do that. Right? And, and God's showing Job His wisdom and Job's lack thereof. And so finally we get to Job 42, verses 1 through 6. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything. You can do anything. And that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. I didn't know what I was talking about. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee and I will speak. Right? He's, I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. He's referring back to, to God's demand. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. When you get into the presence of God, when you see God for who he is, you know what you don't do? You don't think more highly of yourself. Right? Job saw God for who he was, and Job realized he wasn't himself. And his, his response was humility and repentance. He turned from his way. He was changed. So we'll finish with this conclusion. Just a few more verses here. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 says, what, For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, when he comes for us, we'll see in just a second, man, we're going to get a new body. We're going to be changed. It's going to be different. We're not going to struggle with this flesh anymore. It's going to be awesome. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 talks about those who don't know him, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When when he comes again, those of us who know him as Lord and Savior, his presence is going to transform us once, for, once and for all. That's going to be an awesome day. Right? That's going to be incredible. Those who don't know him are going to be banished from his presence forever. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one through 58 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. For this mortal must put on immortality. Right? We're not immortal yet. Our souls are going to exist forever with God in heaven if we know him as Savior. If we're still carrying around this flesh. It's, it's still mortal. So we have to put on immortality. Shall be brought to pass. And the saying that is, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He just said, look, One of these days, Christ is going to return, and that day, the presence of God is going to transform you forever. But we're not sitting around just waiting for that day to come. We've got work to do. He says, we've got victory now. We've got access to God now. We've got the ability to go into the presence of God and be changed now. What are you waiting for that day for? He's going to finish the job then. Let's get close as we can, right? Let's get into the presence of God now. We'll finish with 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, but we all with open face. You see, there's no veil. We all with open face beholding as in a glass. What are we beholding? The glory of the Lord. So if we're beholding with open face the glory of the Lord, what is the result? He says we're changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. You see, you can't, you can't just come to the Word of God casually and, and read stories. I mean, you can. You're not going to get anything out of it. It's not just stories. It's a mirror. It's a looking glass. You can come and, and you can have the mess you've made of your life washed away and washed clean, and you can start over as many times as you need, you can wash the dirt of this world off, and it's, it's a privilege to be able to do that. God desires more. He wants you in his presence. He doesn't want you wandering around and looking at the world and messing around with sin and coming back and feeling sorry for yourself and guilty and saying, you know, God, I'm so sorry, would you just, would you just cleanse me of that? Would you forgive me of that? I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want you to do that anymore either. Why do you keep looking at the world? Why do you keep messing with that thing? Why do you keep chasing after that? And then you come back to me like, you know, I'm some genie, and I'll just grant your wish and make you feel better, and it's all gone, right? How many of us live in that world? That's not why he saved us. He desires for us to get so close that we're changed by what we see and hear everybody that came into the presence of God had the same reaction, a reaction of ultimate humility, right? You you don't come into the the presence of God and come away with more of yourself. It doesn't happen. You don't come into the presence of God, you don't spend time with God, you don't get into his word and actually be with him and come away more selfish. You don't come away self-defensive. You come away with less self. He must increase. I must decrease. John the Baptist said it perfectly. If you know Christ as Savior, you're already a new creature. God desires that that new creature look like his son. We're just getting started. He is deserving. He is worthy. He's worthy that we should just go ahead and try and approach him boldly like he says we're supposed to. We have access to approach him boldly. Why don't we do that? When you do that, you'll come away looking more like Jesus. He didn't die for us to give us a ticket out of hell. He died for you so that you could live a victorious life. He died for you so that the glory that was hidden inside of the tabernacle, that glory could be shown to the whole world through your life through my life. That's why he died for us. He died for us to give us access, direct, intimate, personal access to God the Father. So that when we walk out into the world, we shine like Moses. Right? And people see that glare. and What's that all about? That's the glory of God. That's, that's not me. Let's pray. Lord, I'm I'm so thankful for this study again. And there's some awesome pictures in there. And I know that that you want more of me. You you want me to to get into your presence so that you can remove the me that doesn't look like you. So that you can remove whatever it is in my life that that doesn't show your glory remove my selfishness and my desires and, and, and whatever it is in my life that, that gets in the way of your glory and, and gets in the way of your name being proclaimed Lord I pray that we would all seek to be in your presence on a regular basis that we would not be satisfied with just the cycle of washing our sins off. It is precious. It is incredible that, that you are willing to, to purify us our whole lives. You're willing to forgive us every single time. And I thank you for that patience and that long-suffering. But I'm so thankful that it, it's so much more than that. You want, you want me in your word to be nourished and sustained. You want me in your word to be Held up and edified, and you want me pouring my heart out to you and walking together with you, and, and you want me to be changed. I'm thankful that you want all of us to look like your son. I'm thankful that you want us to get rid of everything that gets in the way. It's a hard process sometimes. It's it's a difficult process, and, and a lot of times it hurts. I'm thankful that you're there with us through all of it and, and we want desperately to, to glorify your name. We, we want desperately for the world to look at us and only see you. We love you and we pray that you're glorified tonight. In Christ's name I pray, amen.